0: You don't have to say it out loud, but what would it take to make you shout for joy? You know, what would it take to make you have your heart burst forth with elation? Kevin Berling works for Gravity Diagnostics in Northern Kentucky. And on August 7th of last year, his co-workers threw him a surprise birthday party. And you know how he reacted? He sued them. (laughs) And get this, he won in court. According to USA Today, get this, he won four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in damages because they threw him a surprise party that he didn't want. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I'm not that big of a fan to be on the receiving end of surprise parties. But to sue someone? A group of people for throwing you a surprise party? Surprise parties aren't the thing for Kevin, evidently. But, but what's your thing? What is it for you? What would it take to make your heart shout for joy? Here's perhaps an even better question. When was the last time? you found yourself shouting for joy. My guess is something was accomplished. That's what prompted it. What prompted it was something was accomplished. Your your football team scored a touchdown. You passed that really hard class. You, You closed that important sale. Your flight arrived on time. Your spouse loaded the dishwasher properly for the first time. (laughs) Something. What prompted your joy, what prompted your shout for joy was the news that something was accomplished. Please hear me. Something you had invested interest in. This morning we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. And you know what Paul's aim is in this text? It's to get you and me to shout for joy. However, he doesn't want you to shout for joy over a touchdown. No, he wants you to shout for joy over something far more glorious. Indeed, in this passage, I want to argue, Paul lays out before us a reality that can make our hearts sing, please hear me, regardless of our circumstances. Do you realize this? I want to suggest that the truth found in Ephesians 1 is what can make the terminally ill cancer patient experience deep-seated joy. It is what can make the person experiencing chronic pain have gladness of heart. It's what can make a spouse who's in a disappointing marriage not give way to despair, but have a glad disposition. Faith, the question is this. Will we have an invested interest in what Paul has to say? In other words, will our interest match the significance and a weight of what is being taught in this text? And my prayer is, I hope so. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one. That's page 976 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. Last month, we began a new series through this short six chapter New Testament book. And although it's short, it is glorious. For as we've discussed, there are many, many significant and important themes found in this letter by the Apostle Paul. Yet, while there are many important themes that do run through this book, there is one central message that we've been suggesting that unites them all, and that is this, and that is God's glory displayed through the church. This, we've been arguing, is the main message of the book of Ephesians. God has chosen the location of the local church to display His glory. And this morning, we're going to be studying... focusing in on chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. As many commentators have pointed out, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, it's actually one long sentence in the original Greek. So to get the full context of the text we're going to be focusing on, I'm going to start reading back in verse 3, okay? So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, 14, the Apostle Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, let's just pause right here. This in and of itself is fantastic. this is glorious. God the Father has predestined us those who are Christians to be his sons and daughters. Amen but you know what it gets better. Uh, how many of you have ever paid to have a home inspection for a home you're considering buying have you ever done this one? okay very good. as many of you know the intent of a home inspection, is to lift every rug to, to see if, if everything in the house works properly, right? Nothing is, is left unturned, right? You want to see if the bones of the building, the property, are good or not. Well, imagine if for a moment you asked a guy to inspect a home, and he inspects a home, and he comes back to you and he says, look, I know the home appears really, really nice on the outside. But i got to tell you, it's a disaster on the inside. He says, in the basement, there's mold deep in all the walls. He's like, when I checked the pipes, almost all the pipes are either broken or have holes in them. And then he comes back and he says, and when I got to the bedrooms, there was a foul stench in all of the bedrooms. And he says to you, look, my encouragement to you, Don't buy this property, but this property needs to be condemned. Let me ask you, would you, this is an easy question, by the way, okay? And you can respond. Would you buy that house? No, of course not, of course not. Christian, like a home inspector, God knows everything about you. He knows what's broken. He knows the stench of your sin. Indeed, He sees the sin that is kept deep and hidden in your heart, which like mold, flourishes in the darkness. In your natural condition, when God the Father looked upon you, He saw the rottenness of the home of your life. And truthfully, all of us in that moment, we should be condemned. But notice that's not what God has chosen to do. Look what we read next in verses 7 through 8. He says, In Him we have what? Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Praise the Lord. Amen. Listen, this is amazing. Despite knowing all our sin, despite knowing we should be condemned, you know what? God looks at our dilapidated life, rife with sin, He still chooses to buy. And He has bought us with the blood of His his own Son, Jesus Christ. And listen to me, as we talked about last week, God the Father doesn't have buyer's remorse. This is what it means to be redeemed. Christian, God has bought you with the blood of His Son. Praise Him. And look what he goes on to say after this. Verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him things in heaven and things on earth. And now here's the several verses we're going to be giving particular attention to this morning. In Him, that's Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ Might be to the praise of his glory. Now consider for a moment the significance of what Paul is saying here. Especially the second line there of verse 12, where he says, God works all things according to the purpose of his will. You know what this means? It means there's not one moment in your life. There's not one moment in my life or anyone else's life that in some sense is not predestined by our God. He is working all things according to the purpose of His will. And most significantly, that includes your salvation, Christian, and that's Paul's point here. As we've seen repeatedly in this chapter, Paul is again driving home the point that Christians are saved because of God's will, not ours. Now, notice how Paul uses the pronoun we there in verse 12. Who is the we? Well, this is a reference to Jewish believers. They were the ones who were the first to hope in Christ. But notice they're not the only ones. For so look at what he says next there in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You know who this verse is describing? You. Me, all of us who are in Christ. You are the you also of verse 13. And as Paul makes clear in his discussion about inheritance, everything said in the previous verses concerning Jewish believers is true of you, Christian. For notice how Paul concludes this section. Look at what he says there in verse 14. The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, To the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. This is God's good word. In 2020, ESPN released a documentary miniseries called The Last Dance. The series revolved around the career of NBA legend Michael Jordan With a particular focus on the 1997 98 season, his final season with the Chicago Bulls, when he won his sixth NBA championship with that team. Did anyone get a chance to see the last dance? Anyone? Hopefully, this will. Okay, good. In the 90s, the Chicago Bulls absolutely dominated the NBA. They won three consecutive NBA titles, twice. As Coach Phil Jackson famously coined the phrase, they accomplished a repeat, three-peat. And does anyone happen to remember, this is not an easy question, the key strategy that led the Chicago Bulls to winning all those championships? Do you remember what the key strategy was? Does anyone want to guess? Who said, who said it? The tri- Give it up for Brian Hawkins. Dr. right. That's right. Un- under the direction of Phil Jackson, the Bulls' coach, the Bulls employed what is called the triangle offense. And as the name implies, three key players placed themselves on the court in the shape of what? triangle, very good, in order to generate the most opportunities to score. And when executed properly, the triangle offense produces unparalleled success. As sports journalist John Klosterman recently wrote, he said, the triangle offense has been pretty much irrefutably the single most dominant offensive attack in any major sport of the past 20 years. Consider for a moment what the Apostle Paul has been teaching about the saving work of our triune God. As Ephesians 1 3 14 makes clear, much like the triangle offense, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all work together in perfect harmony. However, their objective isn't to win NBA championships. No, their objective is to save sinners. I mean, just look at what Paul has taught thus far. We could summarize the major sections of Ephesians in this way. In Christ, number one, we've been chosen by the Father. That's verses 3 through 6. We've been redeemed by the Son. That's verses 7 through 10. And now here, we've been assured by the Spirit. This is the text we're looking at this morning. All members of the Trinity working together in harmony... To bring about the purpose of God's will, and that is the salvation of His own. And what is to be the result of us comprehending God's saving work? The result is to be, please hear me, joyful praise. As we've been saying these past several weeks, the main point of this long sentence is really an exhortation, and that is this Praise God for his glorious work in Christ. This I want to argue is the thesis or the main point of Ephesians chapter 1, 3, all the way down to 14. Praise God. Have your heart shout for joy. For the incredible work he's accomplished to save you, Christian. Far greater than your football team scoring a touchdown. Far greater than you passing that hard class or closing that sale. The work of our triune God, the work our triune God accomplished to save you, Christian, ought to make us sing. You know know what's so interesting what's so interesting to me about watching that miniseries, The Last Dance, it was this, even though, as a lifelong Bulls fan, I knew what was going to happen, I still got excited when they showed clips and replays of the Bulls winning their sixth championship. Because isn't that true, friend, that we never get tired of celebrating the accomplishments of our favorite sports teams? Amen? Christian, how much more so should it be for us in celebrating the saving accomplishments of our triune God? Christian, the work of God in saving you, as expounded upon in this text, is meant to give you a steadfast joy that transcends your circumstances. And blessed is the Christian who disciplines his or her heart to dwell and meditate on such glorious truths. Your car may be broken down. Your job might be really, really hard. Things might have not turned out the way you have liked. Indeed, right now you might be experiencing and suffering some great loss. Things may have not turned out. You may not have gotten everything you've ever wanted. But Christian, please hear me. Your greatest need, indeed your one and only eternal need, has been met according to the purpose and plan of God. Get this, Christian, you have God. In Christ, you've been predestined to be adopted as God's child. In Christ, your sins have been forgiven. You have been redeemed, and you've been given an inheritance which is imperishable, reserved in heaven for you, which will not fade away. And all this has been accomplished and given to you by the work of our triune God. Christians shout for joy. Indeed, discipline your heart to drink from this life-sustaining truth each and every day. Yet sadly, many Christians, and I include myself in this, we can many times fail to do precisely that. Worse still, we can mistakenly think that the Holy Spirit is not part of the triangle offense of God's saving purposes, but rather we can treat the Holy Spirit like the sixth man. But that's not what this text teaches. So taking our cues from this passage, I want to direct your attention to three significant truths concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, the the overarching application here is that these truths ought to produce deep, sustaining joy in the life of the believer. It ought to lead us to praise God. And here's the first truth. Christian, in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals your salvation. Look at verse 3 again, or 13 rather. So Paul elaborates on, we've been predestined to receive this inheritance. And then notice what he says there in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Julie Bagat lives in the town of Falmouth in southwest England. And recently she she had some DVDs she was gonna give to, to a friend. So she got the DVDs, she put them in a small box to send, and then she just shed it on her, on her table there overnight. Well, the next morning, in a rush, she quickly sealed the box with the DVDs, went to the post office, and dropped off the box in the mail. Eight days later, her package arrived to her friend's house. However, the first thing her friend noticed when she opened up the box wasn't several DVDs. Now, you know what she noticed? Julie's pet Siamese cat, Cupcake. You see, Julie didn't spot her pet snoozing inside the parcel when she sealed it up. Nor did she find that package a little heavier than expected when dropping off in the mail. Yet. After eight days of traveling over 260 miles, Cupcake the Cat as well as several DVDs safely made it to the other side of the country. Can you imagine? Now think about that. My guess, and this is a guess, my guess, think think of the experience of the cat. Okay. My guess is that that eight-day trip wasn't smooth sailing. (laughs) Probably had its share of bumps and challenges. Yet, despite difficult traveling conditions, the cat made it safely. And you know why? Because the cat was sealed securely. Even if sealed unintentionally. Notice carefully what Paul teaches concerning the Holy Spirit, and it's his work in our salvation. The text says, "The moment we heard the gospel, the word of truth by the way, I love how he describes the gospel as the word of truth. The moment we've heard it and believed it, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Not later at baptism not later at some moment in life, but the moment you heard the gospel and you responded in faith and repentance, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is, our salvation was secured. Indeed, as the immediate context suggests, when Paul, what Paul is saying here is the Holy Spirit protects and preserves the Christian until they receive and reach their inheritance. Much like that cat made it safely to her destination. And aren't we thankful for this? Indeed, this should move us to praise God. Faith, please hear me. God just doesn't place us in the box of salvation and then leave the top open, unsealed, so we might slip out. No, we are sealed with the Spirit ensuring we will make it to our destination. Consider the words of Jesus himself in John 10. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And notice what he says, And no one will what? Snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, And no one is able to what? Snatch them out of the Father's hand. Do you see the imagery here, Christian? Christian, if you are in Christ, Jesus has got a grip on you, the Father's got a grip on you, and according to this text, the Spirit also has sealed you securely for the day you receive your final reward, the inheritance. As we sing, He will hold me fast. Amen? Christian, you are God's and He will never let you go, all thanks to the work of the Spirit. But then secondly, in Christ, the Holy Spirit fulfills God's promise. Look at how the Spirit is described there again in verse 13. He says, in Him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit spirit Just think for a moment and again you don't you don't have to say it out loud but who is the one human you trust the most and why is that one human the one you trust the most My guess is that in some way they have proven themselves faithful to do what they say they're going to do, right? Their character has been tested and found true, and they've kept their word. These, These are the types of people we trust, right? Notice how Paul describes the Holy Spirit in the verse I just read. He refers to him as the what? The promised Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? You know why Paul says that? Because the Holy Spirit's new covenant presence was foretold. Both the Old Testament prophets and Jesus himself told us of the day in which the Spirit would be sent. In the Old Testament, for example, we see this in Ezekiel 36, 27 and Joel 2, 28. Furthermore, does not Peter Mention the promised Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Or think about what Jesus teaches in John 14 through 16. What good news it is that Jesus said that he has not left us as orphans, but has given us the Comforter, God the Holy Spirit. And faith, this is one of the many places in Scripture that testify that God is faithful to keep his promises. So in addition to producing praise in our hearts, this also ought to deepen our trust in God. And as we discussed a moment ago, and this is my prayer as a church, man, that we would be found to entrust to the Lord the things we can't control and trust the Lord to do what He promises to do. Let us entrust to Him our greatest desires, knowing that He knows what's best for us more than what we think is best for us, be it children, a job, work, finances, having a permanent building. Let's entrust those over to Him and keep Him and believe and trust His promises as found in His Word. Then finally, in Christ the Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance. Look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This again is, you can see there's almost a meter in verses 3 through 14. Praise, praise, praise His glory. On our our family's drive back home from South Florida here to Louisville, we, we found ourselves driving in the middle of nowhere in Georgia, and we were all super, super hungry, wanting to eat. So being the leader, and the man of the house, man of the home, of the, the van at that moment, I was like, okay, I need to nourish my family. So I went off and pulled into the only restaurant I could find, which was a McDonald's. Yes, I'm not ashamed to admit it. We eat at McDonald's. You know, we ate at McDonald's, and you know what? We loved it. (laughs) We loved it. And let me tell you why. What made our experience so great eating at that McDonald's in the middle of nowhere, Georgia, was the lady who took our order inside the building. In my 43 years of life, I've eaten at lots of McDonald's, but she is by far the best employee McDonald's, fast food, high-end restaurant I've ever experienced, I've ever met. And let me tell you why. It wasn't simply the fact that she paid attention to detail, though she did do that, or that her countenance was warm and kind. What put her head and shoulders above the rest was that she was committed to make sure that we actually received our order and that it was correct. She went out of her way. She just didn't promise us at the cash register, you're going to get your food. She was committed to make sure that we actually received it. Faith, in a very similar way, the Spirit has been given to make sure we receive our inheritance. Notice what Paul says here about the Holy Spirit. God just doesn't promise us an inheritance. No, like that kind lady, the Holy Spirit, He is committed that we actually receive it. God is committed that we actually receive it, so He has given us His Spirit. The text says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word guarantee is used only three times in the New Testament each by Paul, and each in reference to the Holy Spirit. In the ancient world, a guarantee functioned as a down payment given to someone providing a service with the expectation that full payment would be made after the service was performed. And giving us the Holy Spirit, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but he's actually giving us a foretaste of it. And in the weeks to come, we're going to talk more about what that inheritance is. But for now, Paul wants us to see that our possession of the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our future inheritance. What kindness. Faith, I don't know when the last time you shouted for joy, when your heart was glad, But my prayer is that this passage will lead you in the joyful praise of our triune God. May the truth of this text cause our hearts to sing not only in the sunshine, but also in the rain and when the thunderclouds roll. Because we have something greater than ever this world can offer, we have God. Amen? Let's pray.